This podcast is brought to you by the Reformed Witness Committee of Hope Protestant Reformed Church in Walker, Michigan. It is our goal to spread our distinct Protestant Reformed views based on the Word of God and the Reformed Confessions. We hope that this message is edifying to you. In the course of reading in the theological history of my ancestral home, the Netherlands, came across a story that startled me. And in fact, it must be true because I found the story in two different sources. There was a man in the Reformed churches in the Netherlands, a minister, who on a Sunday morning came to his pulpit and announced to his congregation, I am celebrating an anniversary today, and I want you to share in the joy I have at the occasion of this anniversary. And the anniversary which I am celebrating is this, that it is today exactly one year ago that I committed my last sin. I was astounded by that. How can you explain anything like that? What went on in the man's head? Didn't he know himself? Didn't he understand what sin is? Minister of the gospel? Boasting about an anniversary that one year he had been completely free from sin. The Bible doesn't know anything about that. And the Bible instead doesn't talk about perfection in this life, but talks about the fact that our life in the midst of the world can best be described as a battle. All kinds of different passages in Scripture point us to the fact that as long as we live in the world, we're not living on a playground, as some seem to think we are, that we're on a battlefield. And it isn't a battlefield which is incidental to our life or on the periphery of our activities here in the world. It's a battle that rages every moment of our lives. It's a battle the outcome of which is a matter of everlasting life or eternal damnation. That's how serious it is. It's a battle that is so severe that if we do not have strength and help from on high, we will lose and go down in utter defeat. It's not a battle against earthly forces. It's not a battle against human armies. It's not a battle against rifles and cannon and bombs. Paul says, we battle not against the flesh or anything that belongs to it. But our battle is against spiritual powers in high places, the powers of darkness and the powers of evil. And the battle goes on and on and on. That battle is only over when finally Christ takes us to himself. I think if I can compare my own life with the life that I lived when I was a youth, I didn't have very much consciousness of the seriousness of this. When you're young, you feel strong, the future lies before you, the goals which you have in mind are within reach. Confidently, I would say blithely, 
we walk into the future with not a strong consciousness of the fierceness of the battle, but the older one gets, the very vicious character of the battle stirs up in one's soul a deep longing to have the battle over. We weary of this battle. And it's of, it's of that that I speak tonight. That terrible battle that every child of God must fight and does fight. The opponents in that battle are described in verse 17 of Galatians 5, which we read together. For the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. Now, if you have the King James Version in front of you, then you will discover that in both instances, the word spirit is capitalized with an obvious reference to the Holy Spirit. There are commentators who deny that and who want to make the spirit in the text our spirits, of which Scripture speaks in more than one place. Ecclesiastes 12, when we die, the Spirit shall return unto God who made it. But the reference here, and let's be very clear on that, is the Spirit. He doesn't mention us, except indirectly, because of this battle that goes on between the flesh and the Spirit, and because they are contrary to one another, we cannot do the things that we would. So the idea of the Apostle is, obviously, that battle goes on within us, on the battlefield of our own flesh, on the battlefield of our own natures. Now, it is especially important to me tonight, as far as an understanding of this subject is concerned, that we understand what the Bible means by flesh. The Bible uses the flesh in, in more than one way, but mostly the concept flesh refers to human nature, our human nature, your human nature, as corrupt and depraved. That is human nature that is sold unto sin. Human nature that is unable to do any good. That's how scripture uses the concept flesh. Now I'm going to use this blackboard a little bit because there are some things about that that seem to me to be important to understand. So I'm going to draw a very simple diagram on the board. Consider this circle. I thought you said these pens worked. Oh, there it goes. Consider that circle the individual person. The very center of the individual is what the Bible calls the heart. Not our physical heart, of course, but the heart that is the center of our moral, ethical life. Around that heart is, first of all, the soul. And the soul that God gave to man is of two parts. The faculty of the mind and the power of the will. Notice I didn't put emotions in there because while emotions are a tremendously important part of our psychical makeup, emotions really belong to the will. Emotions are an activity of the will. 
primarily, although they depend upon the mind. And then around the soul is the body. Our body with all of its various members. What scripture calls flesh is man's nature. Man is, his nature is depraved. That includes his soul and his body. The whole man. One more thing I should say about this, and that is that scripture speaks of a soul and spirit. Man has a spirit. As I said, Ecclesiastes 12 talks about the spirit returning unto God who made it. Christ, when he died on the cross, committed his spirit to God. Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Paul says to the Thessalonians as a parting benediction, may God bless you in body, soul, and spirit. Now, it seems to me that the scriptures, when they talk about the human spirit, are only talking about the fact that the soul has, as it were, two sides to it. And those two sides of the soul are these. One side of the soul enables a man to live in the world and enables him to function in this present world, to see things, to understand various aspects of God's creation, to hear the birds sing, and to be able to relate the various creatures of the creation to each other, without which it would be impossible to live in the world. But the spirit of man relates him to God. That's characteristic of man. It's not characteristic of a tree. It's not characteristic of a lion. It's not characteristic of any other creature but man. Man always functions in relation to God in a moral and ethical sense. Although the fall came, that remains intact. He's always a creature that lives in relationship to God, is accountable to God, does what he does before the face of God is answerable for his actions to God himself. I'm not going to defend, and I think it's wrong to attempt to defend, the proposition that this is only true of those who come under the preaching of the word. That's not so. Every man has a spirit. That means, as far now as my speech is concerned, it means many things, but as far as my speech is concerned, that means that every man from the hot and top in the deepest jungles of some South Pacific island to the man who has been brought up and raised in the sphere of God's covenant in church and home and school know that they are creatures dependent upon God. Paul emphasizes that, for example, in Romans 1. What does he say when he condemns the idolatry of the pagans? Is it as so many say today that the poor people who never heard the gospel don't know anything about God? Or as some would-be evangelists and missionaries who make themselves wiser than God say, those poor people never had a chance. They never had a chance to hear the gospel. How can you condemn them for their sins? No. Every man stands in a relation, a moral, ethical relation to God, so that what he does, he does before the face of God, knowing that to God he is accountable. And in the final analysis, that's deeply embedded in his consciousness because of the fact that he's a creature. He knows he's a creature. He knows he's not independent. He knows that the source of his existence does not lie in himself, 
but that it belongs to the Creator, the Creator who gives him life and existence in the world. That's the difference between spirit and soul. Now when the fall came, the entire nature of man was corrupted, including his spirit. It was corrupted in this sense of the word, that although he knew that what he did it was before the face of God, he deliberately continued his evil way in the consciousness that he was battling against God. The wicked know this. And the evolutionist spouts about the supreme accuracy of his theory of evolution. He doesn't do that in ignorance. He knows that God is the creator. It's a gesture of defiance on his part. It's an expression of his hatefulness of God. Depravity means two things for our purposes. It means, number one, that man is incapable in every respect of doing anything at all good, morally, ethically good, good of which God approves. Dr. Abraham Kuyper, to the contrary, notwithstanding. Depravity means in the second sense that he is not only incapable of doing any good, but that what he does, every action, every thought, every desire, is deliberately, consciously an expression of hatred of God. Now I know there are degrees of this. Jesus makes that clear. A man can harden himself so that he loses a great deal of the consciousness of this. But you explain to me, for example, why the evolutionists not only mock creationism, but hate it. Do everything they can to obliterate it and openly say so. When my wife and I went to the Creation Museum a number of years ago, there was a, a policeman, armed policeman with a police dog. And I asked him, what in the world are you doing here with a vicious dog? He said, since the Creation Museum was built, we have received many, many threats from evolutionists that they're going to bomb it. Why? If the evolutionist is so confident of his theory, why doesn't he think of us who believe in six days of creation as a small minority, harmless? And if he wants to, he can call us so fashioned and unscientific and bigoted and narrow. But what does he care? So there's a group of people like that. So what? There are only a few. The reason is he hates them. He does. The total depravity means conscious, deliberate hatred of God. In Romans 1, God says through the apostle of those people who are being punished for their idolatry, they changed the glory of God into an image like unto corruptible man. Now you don't change anything you don't know anything about. That very fact itself, and God explains through Paul in Romans 1 how they know these things. They see him through the things that are made. But my point is, depravity is far more than inability to do good. It's active opposition. It's hatred. It's a deliberate attempt to overthrow God's rule in the world. And that's because at the time of the fall, man decided Adam as our head and all men after him decided they were going to cast their lot with Satan instead of being in God's creation representatives of God's handiwork. And Satan hates God with a passion that is 
beyond description. That's man's depravity. Now, I don't want to lecture on total depravity tonight, but right here in the heart, God begins his work of salvation. And in that work of salvation, he regenerates his people, first of all. And that regeneration is, first of all, possible through union with Christ. That means emphasis. Through union with Christ. Faith is the means as the union of the child of God with Christ. To Christ his head, the source of all life. So that in that seed of regeneration lies faith and its power. Lies the calling. And I'm not interested now in whether you refer to the the first call of the gospel, I mean the first call of God when he calls into newness of life or the calling through the word. Our canons call this work of God greater in wonder and glory than the creation of the worlds. God creates a new man in regeneration. Belonging to that new man is faith, calling, sanctification, and fundamentally preservation because it can never be lost, and glorification. It's all there. The whole of salvation is right there. In fact, the Apostle John in 1 John speaks of the fact that that new man is such a wonder that he cannot sin. Any man that is begotten of God cannot sin, for he is begotten of God. Sin is impossible for that new man that is created in the heart. Now, that's the beginning of sanctification. That new life is what I would call the principle of all the salvation of the people of God. If you want to try to understand that a little better, I think it's correct to say that the relationship between that regenerated heart and the whole of man's nature is similar to the relation of an acorn to an oak tree. The whole nature in a microcosm is in the heart. Paul even speaks in Ephesians 1 of the understanding of function of the mind, the understanding of the heart. When God therefore begins his work of salvation in the heart, it's a principle beginning of the sanctification of the whole man. And so sanctification means that as a child of the covenant grows and develops and comes especially under the preaching and hears the word of God proclaimed that that new man is fed and grows like an embryo in the womb of its mother. That's what Paul means when in contrast to the flesh he talks about the spirit because that heart is made new and sinless by the work of the spirit of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that heart is the residence if I may put it that way, the residence of the Holy Spirit, 
That spirit is the one who unites us to Christ to begin with. The spirit is the one who brings to us all that is necessary for that new man, that sinless man, to grow and develop. And so the apostle, in what I consider to be a very pointed and beautiful way, says that the opponents in this battle are between our corrupt and depraved and hate-filled natures and the Holy Spirit. That's the battle. That's a good thing. I'll tell you that. Good thing the Spirit is, is the opponent because of the enemies that are aligned against us are Satan and his millions and millions of demons, black, dark, filthy spirits, angels, fallen, who are always present and who are, says, Peter, like a roaring lion, going about seeking whom he may desire to devour. So I'm very thankful that the opponent of that devil is the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Holy Trinity, and the promised Spirit of the exalted Christ, whose purpose it is to bring Christ in all his fullness to the church. Now that battle in Galatians 5.17 is described in terms of lust. The flesh lusteth against the spirit. And although the word lusteth is not used again, that's the idea. The spirit lusteth against the flesh. And the word lust there means, as it does sometimes in scripture, not the terribly wicked sin of covetousness, but a deep, profound, unquenchable, unquenchable desire. That's what lust means. The devil has one goal in mind, just one. That one goal in mind is to defeat the cause of God and the cause of his Christ. And because he cannot reach up into heaven and pull Christ down from his throne and crucify him again as the Jews did, he does the best he can by trying to make God's people one with him. With all of his millions and millions of demons, and don't, don't underestimate that. He's here tonight. The devil is listening. I hope he hears what we have to say about him. I know he will. He doesn't care that you're here, you know. And he sends his demons out with the message. If you want to listen to Prof. Hankel, that's all right. I don't care about that. But don't believe what he says and don't pay attention to him when he brings the scriptures. But doze off and think about other things. How much work you got when you get home and how this brother did this to me and so on. That's what he likes. Best of all. So he's here tonight. He is. And he wants nothing so much as to persuade the people of God that all that the Bible teaches is stuff and nonsense. And that the real goal of mankind is this. You shall be as God for yourself, knowing good and evil. And we can have a good time here in the world, and we can do as we please. Now the text says also, that these are contrary to each other. That is, the flesh and the spirit are contrary to each other. 
In a certain sense of the word, that word contrary almost seems to be not sufficiently strong. But if you understand what it means, it's exactly right. To be contrary to each other means this. They're head on. Everything the devil tries to do, the spirit hates. And every work of the devil in the, heart, in the lives of God's people, he hates. Because the desires of the spirit are to fulfill the purpose of God, to bring God's elect people for whom Christ died to their ultimate destination in heaven, where they will be with Christ and with the whole church, world without end. That's the Spirit's goal. And everything, therefore, which the Spirit desires is exactly what the devil hates. And everything the Spirit in us hates is of the devil. At every point of life, I mean every point of life. The minister said once years ago off the pulpit, well at least we have this in common with the wicked. We both weep over the same things. And we both cry when we lose a loved one. And in that respect we're like the world. No we're not. Maybe we both cry, but that's not the point. We don't weep at the loss of a loved one as those who have no hope, who are comfortless, who are stripped naked by the catastrophe of death. We're not. I guess maybe the Christian is the only one who can weep copious tears at a tragedy in his life while at the same time he's singing the songs of Zion. Only a Christian can do that. And I've seen him singing the songs while the tears are running down their cheeks in the sadness of the occasion. We don't weep like the wicked. We don't laugh like the wicked, at least we ought not. It struck my attention again not so long ago that these comic strips in newspapers that are supposed to be so funny are always mocking the tragedies of life. The disobedient boy in Dennis the Menace and the hand-pecked husband in Dagwood. And always life's tragedies, always life's bitterness, always life as it is conquered by sin. That's what makes the wicked laugh. God's people don't laugh at life's tragedies. God's people, people don't laugh at divorce, remarriage, as if it's funny. God's people don't laugh at a, dis a disobedient child. The world does. Let that be. The spirit and the flesh are contrary to each other at every single point. If they weren't, there would be no antithesis between the Christian and the child of God and the wicked. So that's the nature of the battle. Now, in that battle, it isn't as if the battle goes on apart from us. No, the battlefield is our own natures. That's where the fight goes on. And because the battle is in our own natures, the battle involves us. We are, how shall I put it, on both sides. At least our flesh is on the side of Satan. Our regenerated and sanctified hearts are on the side of Christ. I am, in my own experience, although we have to be careful when we say that, but say it nevertheless. I am, in my own experience, 
on the side of the devil, and I am on the side of Christ. And I am both sometimes sad to say at the same moment and about the same thing. Now, sanctification means, if I can get on with this, that the nature of man is totally depraved all his life. The nature, the mind, the will, and the body remains depraved. We must not say that with the work of the Spirit in our hearts, total depravity ceases to be true. It doesn't. We're still flesh, and we stay flesh till we die. But what sanctification means is this, that the new man in Christ, the Spirit, through the new man in Christ which he has created, works so that his work extends to every part of man's nature. That's what happens. The Holy Spirit, and that takes a mighty power, the Holy Spirit influences the mind. The Holy Spirit influences the will. The Holy Spirit influences the body so that it comes under the dominion of the work of the Spirit and of the new man in Christ. So that the result is that with our minds we think good thoughts of God of his truth. And with our wills, we desire to serve God, but it's the flesh that is still dominant and depraved. And so the result is that the Holy Spirit who works and quickens the new man unto a new life overcomes power of Satan and the part of the world and the part of our own wicked flesh which is sad to say a happy hunting ground for Satan and his minions. Now I want to say a few things about that. In the first place because the influences of the spirit operating through a depraved nature, those influences of the spirit become twisted and distorted by our corrupt nature. So that, as the Catechism puts it, we have only a small beginning of the new obedience and our best works that is, the best works of the Spirit in us are corrupted and polluted by sin. That's the reason. So the Spirit, beloved, in, in, in His influences on our depraved nature does two things. For one thing, that Spirit acts as a powerful, a powerful force in us to restrain us from the sins that are natural to our flesh. I like to use the figure of our flesh as a pit bull. Mean, vicious, powerful dog who has only one desire in mind and that's to kill. But the work of the Spirit is like a leash on that pit bull. So that he holds that pit bull from doing da damage to anyone that comes back, that comes past. And the pit bull may growl and snarl and leap against the leash, but he can't get at the person he wants to attack. The spirit acts that way. 
in the lives of the people of God so that we are not as under the power of the Spirit, we are not as sinful as we could be. There are things which our flesh desires, which the Holy Spirit keeps us from doing. And that's quite a thing in itself. But even a pit bull, no matter how powerful he may be, and no matter how he tugs at a leash, will obey the commands of his master. When the master says to him, sit, he'll sit. And in that respect too, the Holy Spirit not only works in us to restrain things that otherwise we would do, and I'm not talking now only about outward deeds, but thoughts that come into our minds, desires that come into our souls. The Holy Spirit so works that we obey His commands in spite of the viciousness of our flesh. So two things. One is sin is restrained. The other is, we begin to do good. We do. I can pray. I can. I know the best works are corrupted and polluted with sin, but I can pray. I can. I know that. I know that on the wings of prayer, I can enter into the sanctuary of God. That's the spirit. In spite of my depraved nature, because the Spirit, in all respects, influences our minds, our souls, and our bodies. Make of your members servants of righteousness, Paul writes to the Romans. Use your hands and your feet in the service of righteousness. That's the command. The possibility of that lies in the work of the Holy Spirit of Christ. Second thing I want to say about that is this, that there is no end to the battle. The infantry man who fights on Taiwan, or Iwo Jima, after a certain period of time on the front lines, can expect that he'll be taken back from where the fighting is and given rest and recreation. A time to renew his strength, a time to renew his powers and to be healed of his wounds. Nothing like that in the battle which we fight. There isn't. Even in our sleep. How often is it not true that in our sleep evil dreams characterize our sleep because our natures are hateful of God. So there's no rest. It brings up the question of progress in sanctification. I recall when I was a young man and a member of the Young Men's Society in First Church that we began a program of recording the sermons of Reverend Luxman, and my father, and Reverend DeWolf and bringing these sermons to the shut-ins. Great big recorders, wire recorders, spools of wire, probably had 15 miles of wire. Beasts that weighed 40 pounds, not little recorders like this that you could put in your pocket. Heavy beasts. 
But those old people who were shut-ins always wanted to talk a little while. And that was a good thing. I learned a lot about what happens in old age. These saints were lonely. And when we got to talking about sin without exception, I can't think of a solitary exception. These old people would say, the older I get, the more wicked I become. And I couldn't understand that. To me, these old people look like saints, one step from heaven. And I couldn't for the life of me understand that. And first I thought, ah, those old people, you know, they, they don't want to be proud. And so they only express some words of humility. But it wasn't that. It was 100%. And it troubled me. I was looking forward to an adulthood where the sins of youth would be gone. And here were these old saints telling me, don't look for better days ahead, because it'll only get worse. And it troubled me so much that I finally talked to my father about it, and I said to him, how is that? Is that the way it is? And my father said, no, that's not the way it is. That's progress in sanctification. You may think it's contradictory, but it's progress. He says, how's that? And he said, the older we get, the more we realize how awful sin is and how powerful it is in our natures. And behind us lies, lies 70, 80 years of sin. And David, as an older man, prayed, Forgive the sins of my youth. Not because he didn't know they were forgiven, but the reality of them, the fact of them, the trouble they brought, the burden on the conscience remains all one's life. You all know that. You never escape the sins of your youth. They dog your footsteps, even though you know they're forgiven. And my father said, you must remember that the older you get and the more you come to know the power of sin in you, the more also you see yourself in the light of what you will be in heaven, where all your sin will be forever taken. It was only a couple of Sundays later that Reverend Luxma was preaching. I don't remember the text. I don't remember the subject. But he made this statement in his sermon. This is a literal quote. The strongest proof, he said, for progress in sanctification is the sincerity, the growing sincerity, of your prayer for forgiveness. That's sanctification. Don't go out and convert nations. Don't brag about souls saved. Don't turn the world upside down. Don't try all kinds of good works. This is growth in sanctification. Real growth, conscious growth. You're sorry for your sins. And you become more and more sorry for your sins because you see what they are in relation to God and in relationship to your call. The Christian life and that in the third place is much like the history of the nation of Israel. There were times in the history of Israel and Judah <coughs> especially Judah after the division of the kingdom, in which the kingdom was in the hands of and ruled over by powerful godly kings, Asa, Jehoshaphat, David first of all, of course, Hezekiah, 
than when the nation of Israel was ruled by powerful kings that were God-fearing, the worship of the temple of God and the temple flourished, and the worship of God in the temple flourished. The prophets prophesied the word of God. The priests brought their sacrifices. The nation lived as a whole now in obedience to the law of God. Did that mean that all the members of the nation were elect? No. No. There were always reprobate there. But because of the nature of the kingdom, they were held down. They were marginalized. They were pushed to the periphery of the life of the nation. They had no influence. But then along came wicked kings. Ahaz, Manasseh. Wicked kings who built altars to idols in the temple, who killed the people that worshiped God, who did every abomination so that God himself said of them, they do worse than the heathen. And the whole nation became corrupt and worthy of captivity. Did that mean there were no elect in the nation? No. Elijah thought so. But God reminded Elijah, I have kept to myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. If you look at the nation, as Elijah did, you would say it's hopeless. The nation is totally apostate. That's the way it is in our lives, beloved. There are times in our lives, thank God for those times too, when the Spirit dominates in our life. We live close to God. Our prayers are frequent and fervent. Not perfect, never here, but frequent and fervent. We rejoice when it's time to go up to the house of God to worship. We enjoy the fellowship of the people of God. We live our lives in the consciousness of our calling to love the Lord our God with all our hearts and minds and souls and strength. There are times like that. I suppose it's true of all of you as it is of me. Those times aren't all that frequent. The other kind of times, the flesh dominates. It does. Read the Psalms. Read the Psalms in this way that when David and the other sweet singers of Israel speak of their enemies in Moab and Ammon and Philistia, those are spiritual enemies. They sing of that. They're a threat, David says, to my soul. They're the Old Testament types of Satan and his minions and of the wicked world around them. And sometimes the psalmists sing out of the depths of their souls, Psalm 77, Psalm 116, and many others. They're overwhelmed, Psalm 42, the billows of God roll over me, and I all but drown. And it's because of the fact that sin has dominion. It seems, never does, but it seems over my life, has its way with me. And it becomes a kind of a desperation. I can't get out of it. I have no strength, no power to escape from this awful sin of which I have become guilty. And sometimes we almost despair. Has God forgotten to be kind? Has he in anger hid his face? And so we cry out to the Lord from the depths of our soul, Lord, deliver us. But he doesn't always seem to hear. 
And in the weakness of our faith and caught in the snares of Satan who's having his way with us and overwhelmed by the awfulness of our sin, we begin to despair almost, almost despair. Those times are also present. And then the chastening hand of the Lord comes upon us and brings us sorrow and grief and trouble. And rather than say, this is my sin and I deserve what I receive, in rebellion against God I say, why do you do this to me? Why do you think I have this coming? When I ought to be on my knees crying out for mercy and singing in thy wrath and hot displeasure, chasten not thy servant, Lord. There are those times in our lives. And there are those times in our lives, as you all know, when the whole thing doesn't mean anything to us. We go skipping and jumping through the pathway of life, trouble-free in our estimation, having a good time, enjoying the things of the world, without a thought of God and without a thought of His Word and without a thought of where the way in which we walk leads us. Indifference, spiritual ennui, our flesh. But nevertheless, Nevertheless, and with that, I have to end. We're going to talk about that, God willing, tomorrow night. There's always progress in sanctification. There is. But the progress in sanctification is not to be found in that Pharisee who stood there in the temple and prayed, Lord, I thank thee that I am not as other men are. But the progress of sanctification is with that poor man there in the corner who didn't dare to lift up, lift up his eyes to God and all he could do was beat his breasts. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's sanctification. And in addition to that, what was it? You, Reverend Stewart, who mentioned the Akhtarar Creed. It's all right not to have to repent of sin to close with Christ. That was the essence of the Creed. You don't have to forsake sin to close with Christ, that is, to find peace in the cross. I don't know what was the matter with it. That's, and by the way, that was fundamental to the whole position of the marrow men, too. The marrow men whose works are so widely celebrated among evangelicals here in the British Isles. Oh no, oh no. The child of God says, I won't do it again. Lord, I won't do it again. We do. We do. And we know we will. And so we plead with the Lord. Lord, deliver me. And he hears that prayer. And he forgives our sins. And gives us the joy of forgiveness. Though we sin against him, in a thousand ways and a thousand times a day, he forgives and he causes his face to shine upon us and he delivers us from his chastisements and he leads us to the cross that there, repentant and broken-hearted sinners, we may not know of the glory of Christ's salvation and rejoice in it and experience it and even though we never become perfect here on earth, and never will, not even get close, 
What a joy it is to work in the cause of God and of his kingdom. To turn our backs on the world where there's nothing, nothing to ease the ache of our hearts. And to have restored to us the joy of God's grace and mercy. That's the spirit. Do you think the devil with, if he would have a billion devils, do you think the world with its 10 billion wicked people in it, do you think that all the powers of temptation, do you think that the power of your own sinful flesh can resist the Holy Spirit? It's impossible. It's impossible. The spirit lusts against the flesh. His desires, his strong, unquenchable desires are to bring us to God. You may say, why doesn't God make us perfect right away? Why, when he begins the work of regeneration, doesn't he make us perfect? Well, we say that in our foolishness. Because in the first place, if he made us perfect at the moment of our regeneration, we'd have to go to heaven. Because not only are our sins forgiven, and not only are we washed from the pollution of our sin, but we are transformed by the power of the Spirit into saints, gloriously beautiful saints. Prostitutes are made the bride of Christ, Blasphemers are on their knees praying. That's what the Spirit does. Mighty deeds, terrible sinners become beautiful saints by the work of the Spirit. But it takes a long time to save us, beloved. It does. I may say that, I hope you understand me, but it's a very difficult job for the Spirit to save us. It is. Peter talks in his first epistle about being scarcely saved. The righteous are scarcely saved. Are saved with the greatest difficulty. Because God is powerless? Because God is not omnipotent? No, no. But I speak as a man and I speak conscious of the greatness and power of God. We are so bad and so rotten and so corrupt that God had to send his own son to the cross and to the bottom of hell to save us. That's what it took. That's what it took. And the way from here to glory is a way in which God works mightily and diligently and without ceasing to bring us finally to glory. And it's hard work. It, Peter leaves us with the impressions. Soldiers on the battlefield with helmets that are knocked to skew and armor that is torn and a shield pierced with many arrows and a broken sword in our hands and desperately weary beyond description of the battle. But when all the enemy is slain and the battlefield is strewn with the carcasses of those who hate God, the believer stands. He's still standing. Maybe the only one, but he's still standing. Stand, therefore, says the apostle. Ah, the power of the Spirit. And by that power, at last when we lay our heads down to rest, we do so in the hope of perfection. That's what makes heaven so desirable. Not golden spirits. <coughs> Not pearly gates. Just to be free from sin 
and to be so filled with the glory of God revealed in Jesus Christ that it transforms us into beautiful blocks of marble in the temple of the Most High. I thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hope PR Ministry Podcast. We are a part of the Protestant Reformed Churches in America, and we are located in West Michigan. Our goal is to spread our distinctive Reformed beliefs. If you have any questions or feedback, please feel free to reach out to us at hoperwc at gmail.com and visit our website at hopeprchurch.org if you would like to learn more about our beliefs. You can also worship with us every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 5 p.m.